0: This is the word of the Lord. And as they thus spake, Jesus Himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And He said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, My hands and My feet, that it is I Myself. Handle Me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you... See, me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and an oven honeycomb. And he took it, and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold... I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 24, please, again. Luke chapter 24. Just a reminder, in these Sunday evenings, we've uh, been working through a series called From God Through Men to Us and um, seeing how God has given us his scriptures. Tonight we'll be looking at the canon, the question of the canon, the, 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 the 66 books of the Bible. How did we receive the 66 books of the Bible? How were dis- deter- they determined to be the Word of God? Uh, um, the canon is not what uh, men decide, the canon is what men discover. And uh, God has given us the canon of Scripture, the 66 books of the Bible. Uh, men have discovered what the canon is. How, do we, how, did, how, did, how was that um, ascertained? How did the men discover that? That's the question that we'll try to answer uh, this evening. Last week, as we looked in Luke chapter 24 and verses 13 through 35, and the two on the, way to, on the road to Emmaus and their experience with Jesus Christ... We could say, as one preacher said, uh, when, he first, when Jesus Christ first came across these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they had hearts that were breaking at Jesus' death. Hearts that were breaking at His death. But Jesus joins them and begins asking them questions and shows them from the Scripture that this was necessary, and that He is the point, uh, at the center of Scripture, and their hearts become searching. Their hearts become searching. And then in verse 32, that wonderful verse, that says, And then they said to one another, after he, after he disappeared from them, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked with us by the way and while He opened to us the Scriptures? They had a heart that was burning. As they encountered the living Jesus Christ, they encountered Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, and they encounter Him as the living Word. And I find it interesting as they uh, encounter Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ in His physical form appears to them that they don't recognize who Jesus is until it's the Word that is shared with them. See, there is a certain sense that apologetics are helpful, but when it all comes down to it, God works through His Word. They had Jesus Christ right in their face, right in their presence, and they didn't recognize Him until Jesus Christ opens His Word and shows them who He is. And when we encounter Jesus as the living Word, when we see Him in the Scripture as the point of all Scripture, either directly or indirectly, our hearts burn within us. And that's what we saw last time. But as we close this book of Luke in verses 36 through 54, I'd like you to put your bookmark there at the end and go all the way to the beginning, please, in Luke chapter 1. And be reminded why Luke wrote this compilation. He says in Luke 1, verse 1 through 4, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they deliver them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect or more complete understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty, and that's going to be a key word in the message today, the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Theophilus, I'm writing. I have conducted interviews. I have gone to the eyewitnesses. And I am writing to you, Theophilus, so that you can know the things that you have heard from others are certain. You can rest in the truth. They are historical, but they are more than historical. They are life giving. They are life transforming. They are the living word. And I want us to see this morning, as we look in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 53, of the certainty of Jesus' Lordship. I want to suggest to us this morning that we can be certain that Jesus is Lord because of five things. We can be certain Jesus is Lord because of five things. Look in verse 36, please. It says, And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. Luke takes efforts and pains to record to us that they didn't accept that right away. These disciples were doubters, they wondered could this really be him? You see, Luke doesn't gloss over, the, over these, these parts of the story that the disciples struggled with this. In fact, he wants us to understand this because it validates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' closest followers had problems with this. But Jesus opens their eyes to see that He is indeed risen. And I want to suggest to us this morning that we can be certain Jesus is Lord because of five things. The letter of the day is the letter L. And the things that we'll be looking at are all L's. Jesus, this morning, first of all, is Lord. The certainty that Jesus is Lord is because Jesus is fully alive, because Jesus lives. Jesus lives. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? But it is so deep. It is so profound. Jesus lives. Not as a spirit. Not as a ghost. Jesus is fully alive, bodily, physically alive. Jesus is alive. Luke will spend eight verses in chapter 36 through 43 emphasizing that this person who appears with the disciples was not a spirit, he was not a ghost, but he was Jesus bodily resurrected. He can be touched, he can be recognized by his physical appearance as the Jesus that they knew before his death. He has flesh and bone. He has skin and muscle. He speaks and they hear Him. He interacts with them. And He even eats. Verse 37, it says, But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold My hands and My feet! That it is I Myself. Handle Me and see... For spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. The end of John uh, shares with us that uh, he showed the prince of the nails. And while they yet believed not for joy and wonder, he saith unto them, Have ye here any meat? In other words, to them in verse 41, it's almost too good to be true. There. Their emotion could believe it. They were excited about it, but it hadn't crashed through to their intellect. They couldn't understand how this could be true. And Jesus does something very simple, doesn't He? He says, Well, oh, I see you guys have been here. You've had a nice meal. you have any leftovers? Do you have a piece of meat? And verse 42 Luke records this because he wants us to understand that Jesus is fully alive, bodily alive. They gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. This was his demonstration that he was just as alive as they were. He keeps... You see, these people, these men, are eyewitnesses that this is the same Jesus that was with them in Galilee, that was killed in Jerusalem, and that is alive now. You see, if he had just swooned and woken up from the coolness of the tomb, as some would say, and walked out, somehow removed that several-ton stone sealing the door, and somehow walked seven miles on those feet, that had been pierced with nails with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And that would be a problem. But this Jesus had died, and He is alive. He is alive. In fact, He says it uh, in verse 39. He says, It is I myself. It is I myself. It's really me. And folks... Because of the certainty that Jesus is fully alive, we can be certain that then Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord because Jesus is fully alive. He is alive and He will fellowship with you and He will share His life with you. In fact, if we go over to what John writes in Revelation chapter 3 to one of the churches, John says this in Revelation chapter 3, in verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him. I will have fellowship and a meal with him, and he with me. You see, Jesus' invitation is, I am alive. Because I am alive, I am Lord. And even though I am Lord, I desire fellowship with you. I want to ask you a question this morning. Does your life prove Jesus is alive? Does your life prove Jesus is alive? Sure, you might know intellectually Jesus is alive, and you say, I believe He's resurrected. But do you live as though Jesus is still in the tomb? Do you walk with Him and know Him and eat with Him? Is your faith real? Does your life show the certainty that Jesus is Lord because He is truly alive? This morning we can be certain that Jesus is Lord because Jesus is fully alive. Jesus lives. But notice what he then does after he eats the fish and shows the physical reality of who he is. In verse 44 it says, And he said to them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses... And in the Prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. He takes the Hebrew understanding of the division of Scriptures, three sections. Law of Moses, the Prophets, which would actually include the historical books, Joshua on through. And then the Psalms, the books of poetry and a couple of the Prophets like Daniel. And he opens in verse 45 their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And what is the point of the Scriptures, he says, in verse 46 and 47? And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. You see, we can be certain that Jesus is Lord, not only because of the certainty that Jesus is fully alive, He lives, but because of the certainty that Jesus is scripturally central. He is scripturally central. In other words, we could say that on the pages of the text that we have, Jesus looms. Jesus looms large. On the pages of the text. Just as we saw last week, that Jesus is the North Star of Scripture. Every story, every command, every promise, every teaching whispers His name. The Bible revolves around the person of the Lord Jesus. And notice the words that Luke records in verse 44. He says, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled. All things must be fulfilled. That it was necessary for this to happen. In verse 46 he says, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He looms large over each text and His shadow is cast over the law, the prophets, and the writings. We saw last week, and I mentioned this, that every passage either predicts His work, it prepares for His work, it reflects His work, or is the result of His work. He is the backbone of Scripture from which every rib of Scripture passages connect to. Notice also, that Jesus is connecting the Old and the New Covenant together. He is the bridge between the two. He is showing the continuity, the continuation. He's bridging the two Testaments. He fulfills the Old and He provides the New Covenant reality that the disciples will be a part of. And Luke is bringing out the continuity, the, continu- the continuation of the Old with the New with the bridge of Jesus Christ as the hinge of it all. See, the Bible is an open book. It is an open book of the divine design of God to bring Jesus' life and mission. You might also want to make a side note here that Jesus is present with his disciples when Jesus is present in his word. Notice what happens in verse 45 Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Jesus is present with His disciples when Jesus is present in His Word. And Jesus is saying here in these verses that everything that is written is connected to Him and what He's done. And on the basis of this, we have a mission. So Jesus is Lord because of the certainty that He looms as a central figure in Scripture. And as a result, we have a mission. We have a mission. You see, there is a third certainty that Luke is bringing out to us. There is a certainty that Jesus is Lord because Jesus is graciously pardoning. In other words, Jesus liberates. Jesus liberates. After explaining in verse 46 the point of Scripture, he says now there is a mission in verse 47. He says, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. You see, Jesus is graciously pardoning because He is Lord. He liberates. What Jesus had done in fulfilling Scripture and now begun a new life was to be proclaimed to the rest of the world. You see... Jesus doesn't just go for the cross for us in our place so that we could just go free and continue in our same sin, does He? No. Jesus goes for the cross for us because His atonement was sufficient. It was sufficient to liberate us from the power of sin. Yes, the influence of sin is all around us, but we never have to sin. He has supplied us with everything we need. We'll see in the next point. But Jesus has saved us for a purpose, for a mission. Notice what the mission is in verse 47. The proclamation of His name that Jesus is a pardoning God. And notice where this would begin. He says, beginning at Jerusalem. Now if you think about uh, back in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 9 and other passages in Luke, Jesus had made it His goal and His focus to get to Jerusalem. That was His goal. That was His end point. But now... Jesus sees Jerusalem as the place where it's not going to end, but where it's going to begin. The message would scatter. Why would Jesus have been so intent to get to Jerusalem? To die. And to be raised again. Now Jerusalem will be the place where His message will scatter to the world. Jerusalem is just the beginning. What is the goal of what Jesus accomplished? Nobody ever hears about it. What good does it do? You see, the goal of what Jesus accomplished is, on the basis of what He uh, he has done, He will save people for His name. And how will He do this? He will do this, according to verse 47, by the proclamation of good news. And then a call to respond to that good news. Why is it good news? Well, because He says in verse 47 that repentance and remission of sins remission of sins let's focus on that for a couple of minutes remission of sins or forgiveness as it's translated in other other places forgiveness why is that good news forgiveness the announcement that there is a pardon available There is a pardon available. Why is there a pardon available? Because we all sin and come short of glorifying God by loving Him with all our heart, soul, and mind and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And because of that, we will be punished eternally. But there is a pardon that is offered, a release from the punishment from sins. Because the eternal penalty has been paid, there is freedom from guilt and sin's eternal punishment. That's why it's good news told that during the Revolutionary War there lived in Pennsylvania a pastor by the name of Peter Miller. And Peter Miller was a man who was greatly loved in his community. But there was one man who lived near the church, for some reason just hated him. And he had earned an unenviable reputation for his abuse of the minister by his words. This man was not only a hater of the church, but it was found out in the Revolutionary War that he was also a traitor to this new country. And he was convicted of treason and sentenced to death. And the trial was conducted in Philadelphia. And no sooner did Peter Miller, this man's enemy, had he heard about it, than he set out on foot to visit General Washington and he interceded for the man's life. But Washington told him, I'm sorry, I cannot grant your request for your Friend! Friend! Miller cried, no, 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 wait, this man is the worst enemy I have in the world. George Washington said, what? You walk you 16 miles to save the life of an enemy? He said, that in my judgment puts the matter in a different light. I will grant him a pardon for your sake. That pardon was made out and signed by General Washington, and Miller proceeded uh, at once on foot to a place 15 miles distant where the execution had been scheduled to take place. That afternoon. And he arrived there just as the man was being uh, shuffled to the scaffold. And when he saw Miller hurrying toward the place, the man remarked, there's old Peter Miller. He's walked all the way from Ephrata. And he's here just to have his revenge gratified and to see me hang. Scarcely had he spoken those words. And Miller pushes his way through the crowd with that letter to the condemned man and hands the pardon to the executioners that saved his life. Folks, that is just a small picture of the pardon that we as the people of God have received. The pardon, though we are enemies of God, Christ died for us. He gave his life for us. But what good is a pardon if it's not received? That's why the second part says, in verse 47, that other word says, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached. Repentance see, in 1829, George Wilson in Pennsylvania was sentenced to be hanged by a United States court for robbing the mail and for murder. And President Andrew Jackson, for some reason, pardoned him. Gave him a presidential pardon. But this was refused by the man. And Wilson insisted that it was not a pardon unless this man accepted it. That was a point of law never before raised. And it caused such a stir that the president would have a pardon available and would pardon this man, but but the man would would push back on it, George Russell would push back on it and not receive the pardon. And so there was a question of, well then, is it a pardon if he doesn't receive it? It went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided. And Chief Justice John Marshall gave the following decision. He said, a pardon is a piece of paper, the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated. It is hardly to be supposed that one under sentence of death would refuse to accept the pardon. But if it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. And he was hanged. Folks, the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins that is offered, the payment for our eternal sins, the pardon that is offered is no good if there is no repentance. If no, there is no reception. You see, the gospel of Christ that is the power of God and the salvation is for everyone. No matter what they have done against God, but it is only those who respond to the call who receive it. So who is offered pardon after hearing this proclamation? Well, those who repent. There's a condition here, a condition of believing repentance. What is believing repentance. And why does Jesus say that it is to the repentance for the forgiveness of sins that is to be preached in His name? Well, very simply, repentance is turning from my selfishness to God's provision and faith. You see, there is no salvation without true saving faith and repentance. You might say, "Well, I know the facts." Well, knowledge is important, but it is more—it impo- is—it 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 uh, is important, but not—it uh, is—it is more than knowledge of what Jesus has done, as James says. The devil's belief and trample. You might say, well, it's knowing the facts and agreeing that they're true, that they're important. And that's not enough. Remember in John chapter 3, verse 2? A man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus. A man who Jesus clearly says has not been born again. But yet he recognizes that what Jesus says and what he teaches is true. And he likes it. In fact, in John chapter 3, verse 2 it says, The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. He liked what he was hearing. He liked what he was saying. But Jesus says, you're not born again in verse 3. You cannot come to the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You must be born again. And so folks, it's more than knowing the facts, it's more than agreeing that the facts are important. Those things are good, but they're not enough. You must decide to depend on Jesus alone to save you personally. It is a personal trust. Jesus pictures it as coming to Jesus. Coming to Jesus. Casting your burden upon Him. Receiving His good grace. Now, how do I come to Jesus? Well, let's look at how Luke fleshes this out. In, his, in, the, in, the, in the next volume he writes, in Acts. Because this becomes an essential message of the apostles, their proclamation of the of the gospel, forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter two and verse thirty-seven, Peter's first big sermon to the unbelievers. Acts two thirty-seven, Jesus is declared as the crucified and risen Christ. And it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What is our response to this message of the pardon? And Jesus said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Your response is to this. Your response is to repent. Show that you are genuine in your faith with baptism. That you are being immersed in the life of the triune God and receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, that baptism doesn't equate their salvation, but is the proof of their repentance. That they have turned away from themselves to God. Later on in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter preaches again and he says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. In chapter 5, verse 31, the apostolic message is the same. Peter again says, Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul, on his charge to Mars Hill, to the pagans, gathered in Athens, says this in Acts 17.30. He says, Now God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Romans 2.4 tells us that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about a godly repentance, one that is more than just remorse over the consequences, but one that is an action of turning away from my sin to God. A godly repentance. So what then is repentance? Well, it is understanding that my sin is wrong and I am guilty of God's sentence of eternal punishment upon me. It is being sorrowful for my sin and coming to a point where I hate my sin more than I love it. And I love Jesus Christ more than my sin. It is coming to the point that I am surrendering control. I am handing over my sin to Jesus and taking his free gift of righteousness. This does not mean I'm a perfect person, but it means my face is set. My focus is Jesus. It is turning over, we could say, the keys of my life and turning it to Jesus as my Savior and Master. It is releasing the sin and selfishness I am clinging on because of the work of God's grace for me. It is stopping the excuses and it is turning to Christ for salvation. Isaiah in the Old Testament puts it in such a picturesque way. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6, Isaiah says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I want you to understand this morning that Jesus is Lord. Thirdly, because of the certainty that Jesus is graciously pardoning, Jesus liberates. Where are you at? All right, maybe you're still at the point of intellectual knowledge of the facts. Maybe even an emotional approval of the facts. But you have not come to trust in Jesus personally. Do you come to Jesus in repentance for your pardon? Believer, are you living as one who has been forgiven much? And those professing believers in here who say you have a new relationship with Christ... That would mean that we would have a new relationship with sin. Do you live to show that Jesus is Lord and Savior because He has graciously pardoned you and made you His own? I want you to understand that Jesus is Lord because Jesus liberates. That was the message. But fourthly, moving along here. There is a certainty that Jesus is provisionally sending. And this is the worst L I could come up with. Jesus loads. In the verse I could think of in Psalm 103, He daily loads us with His benefits. You see, there's a promise here. In verse 49, it says, And behold, I send the promise of My Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endowed with power from on high. He loads us with His power. Later at the end, in verse fifty. Uh, 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 verse 50 it says, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. He loads them with his benefits. Well, what benefits? Well, and what is the promise of the Father? Well, there's the Abrahamic covenant all the way back in Genesis 12, to 3 The promise that all the nations will be blessed through a descendant of Abraham. In 2 Samuel 7, there's a a, a Davidic covenant, a promise to David that a descendant of David would be a son to God and the source of blessing to Israel and the nations. Then in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, there's a promise of a new covenant. A new covenant that would produce a new heart for God's people. And that heart would be produced, Ezekiel and Jeremiah say, Ezekiel specifically, by Water in the Spirit. Joel 2 tells us that this new covenant, this promise, uh, would come by the pouring out of God's Spirit. John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 said the arrival of the Spirit was the evidence of, of, of Jesus' arrival as the Messiah. But it all comes most clear in Acts chapter 1, the promise of the Father. Some of the verses that we read this morning as our congregational reading in Acts chapter 1,
1: rehearsing this
0: scene here, this ascension, asking questions and Jesus giving answers in verse 4 of Acts 1. He says, wait for the promise of the Father in Jerusalem, don't leave Jerusalem, that promise that you've heard of me, and he says in verse 5 a little bit more about this promise. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized or you shall be immersed with the Holy Spirit not many days since. Well, they still don't have the full picture and they wonder, well, Jesus, is it now that you're going uh, to come and reign as Messiah and, and get rid of our oppressors and, 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 and restore again Israel, the things that we had before the, before the captivity? And Jesus says, that's not for you to know. But he says this in verse 8. Here's how I will build my kingdom. Ye shall receive power when, when the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And you'll be witnesses. Beginning in Jerusalem again. You see, that promise of the Father, that blessing in verse 51, that comes, comes in Acts chapter 2. You see, Jesus is promising to send His Spirit. In John chapter 16, Jesus says, it's better for me to physically be away from you, because that means I'll leave you my Holy Spirit, which is better for you than me being present right there in your midst. Because the Spirit diffuses the person of Christ throughout the body. In other words, the task Jesus is giving to proclaim the News of repentance and forgiveness of sins will be great and difficult, but Jesus is going to give the ability to accomplish it. He's going to load them up with everything they need. The indwelling Spirit of God will be poured out in the church of Pentecost in Acts 2. You see, Jesus blesses us with the fullness of God through the Spirit of God taking up residence in us, filling us with His power over sin to obey His commands. Do you realize this? It's been shared before about the uh, task of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but Charlie shared uh, several uh, Sunday nights. and Here's just a few things. The Holy Spirit gives light. The Holy Spirit teaches us. The Holy Spirit guides us. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be witnesses. The Holy Spirit lives within us. The Holy Spirit sets us apart and sanctifies us, beautifies us, makes us holy. He opens our spiritual eyes. The Holy Spirit is like water. How long can you live without water? Not long. Jesus says in John chapter 7, Whoever believes in me, out of his belly shall flow forth rivers of living water. And then John adds an interpretational note as to what that is. And Jesus says he was speaking of the Spirit of God. You see, when Jonathan Edwards says this, When God set his seal on a man's heart by his spirit, there is some holy stamp Some image impressed and left upon the heart by the Spirit as by the seal upon the wax. And this holy stamp or impressed image exhibiting clear evidence to the conscience that the subject of it is the child of God is the very thing which in Scripture is called the seal of the Spirit and the witness or evidence of the Spirit. And this mark stamped by the Spirit on God's children is His own image. That is the evidence by which they are known to be God's children. They have the image of their Father stamped upon their hearts by the Spirit of adoption. And that's why Jesus says, wait. You cannot do this until you receive the promise of my Father. Christian believer, does your life show that the Holy Spirit really lives inside of you? Does He dwell in you? Is there fruit that the Spirit lives in you and is making you like the Son of God? Or is your life like a barren desert that has more evidence of lifelessness? Have you ever been made alive in the first place by the Spirit of God at salvation? So we need to understand... That Jesus is Lord because Jesus loads up. He supplies everything we need for His life in us. He is the master of the house. We are His house. He furnishes everything we need to be His dwelling place. He loads us up with the blessing of the promise of His Father, His Holy Spirit. Jesus is certainly Lord. And finally, Jesus is Lord because Jesus has authoritatively ascended. He has authoritatively Ascended. Jesus leads. Jesus leads. You see in verse 50, He leads them out to Bethany, lifts up His hands and blesses them, and then down the road in verse 51, while He blessed them, He was parted from them and carried up into heaven. He is authoritatively ascended. Jesus ascended into heaven. He received glory and honor that He had left when He became the God-man on earth. Philippians 2 tells us, He took upon the form of a man... He emptied himself, and he took upon the form of a servant He was made the likeness of man. He saw equality with God as a thing not to be leveraged, not to be grasped, but he humbled himself. But today, he is seated at his father's right hand in honor having accomplished his task. He rules in authority because he died as a lamb. He rules as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He says, I know that. What does that mean for me? How does it affect my life today? Here's what this means for you. You are united to Christ in every aspect of His work of redemption and His ascension foreshadows our future ascension into heaven with Him. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 talks about us being raised up with Him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the author of Hebrews says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand the throne of God on high. Looking unto Jesus. Why? Because He's the ascended Jesus. Sometimes we leave out that aspect of the Gospel. He's the ascended Jesus. And His ascension gives us absolute assurance that our final home will be in heaven with Him. Where I go, you cannot go, but I will bring you unto myself, Jesus says. And where I go, you will go. He will be with me, in John chapter 14, verse 3. Because of our union, our connection with Him in His ascension, we share in part of His authority over the universe. Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 6. Paul says this. And have raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 12 tells us that because of our connection to Jesus and His ascension that we have power over even the spiritual wickedness in high places.
1: Against those things that we
0: don't war against in flesh and blood, but principalities and powers that rules of the darkness of this world. We have the armor of God because of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And one day, in eternity, we will more fully share in His authority over the universe in the ages to come. That's what the writer of Hebrews talks about in verses 5-8 through of chapter 2. But I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. One of the promises made to one of the local churches... That Jesus delivers a letter to. Signed by Him. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says this. To endure in the faith. And He says, And He that overcometh and keepeth My works unto the end, to Him will I give power over the nations. And He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, He unites us to His life, His ascension. And in chapter 3, verse 21, He says, To Him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in His throne. Jesus is certainly Lord because of His authoritative ascension. Jesus leads. And I want you to, to, to ask this question about yourself this morning. Do you live in certainty that Jesus is Lord because He is authoritatively ascended? Do you live confidently because Jesus is King? Jesus is Lord because finally of the certainty that Jesus leads. And this ends the book of Luke. And Luke Leaves it open-ended because he's going to start again in the book of Acts. But Luke is asking us, what will you do with the certainty of Jesus? Jesus is Lord. This is certain. This is sure. This is absolute. Do you believe it? Do you live it? Jesus is Lord. Let's pray.